This is Performance Anxiety on the Pantheon Podcast Network, and I am your host, Mark. Mike Baguetta has always loved music. It's been a constant part of his life. His dad was a guitarist who played for years. Some of his earliest memories are of his dad's guitar case and amps stacked up after a wedding gig smelling like old cigarette smoke. He still finds that smell nostalgic. But Mike found his own path into music, writing original songs from the start. He went to Rutgers to study music and even played the Montreux Jazz Festival during that time with George Benson holding court in the front row. But at one point he quit music and decided to pursue other opportunities. That's where he and I find our Yellow Pages connection. But the guitar slowly crept back into his life and wouldn't leave. So he went with it, releasing an album of prepared guitar as his solo debut. Interesting idea. He's really big on improvisation, and that's led to some killer collaborations and albums like his latest release, Every When We Go. It's the second release from the trio of Mike Baguetta, Mike Watt, and Jim Keltner. The album title came from guitarist Henry Kaiser, and Mike is anxious to see how many times it gets autocorrected. It's a great album filled with improvisation that is actually listenable. Now you'll hear clips during this episode but the songs have so much movement that you really need to go check them out in their entirety. So I recommend picking up Every When We Go wherever you get new music. And follow Mike at Mike Baguetta on Instagram, at MAB Notes on Twitter, and follow us at Performance ANX on both. Reach out there or email us at theperformanceanxietypod at gmail.com. Let us know what you think and maybe who you'd like to hear from next. Please give a warm welcome to Mike Baguetta on Performance Anxiety, part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Okay. Hey, uh, this is Mike Baguetta, and I'm excited to be on the Performance Anxiety Podcast with Mark Shea, talking about my new record, Every When We Go, with me, Jim Keltner, and Mike Watt. All right. See? Trust, do it, bang. First two. <laughs> It's kind of amazing how like uh, years of like lockdown, quarantine, video, everything, like I can still manage to fuck up, like not having the sound on or something. <laughs> yeah, it's, I'm guilty of that occasionally myself. So, yeah. But although my favorite was uh, I had a couple of months ago, I had on um, uh, Steve Postel and Danny Korchmar. Oh, yeah. And the sound was terrible. Oh, no. And it was on their end. Okay. So I was happy about that. These You're two, off the hook. Yeah. <laughs> I got these two engineering wizards, and the, their sound was terrible. Wow. That's yeah. hilarious. <laughs> Cooch tried to blame it on me, though. <laughs> anyway, I wasn't having any of that. So, well, thank you for coming on. This should be a lot of fun. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, of course. So, uh, you've got a new album out, but... What I like to do to figure out a little bit more, uh, I guess maybe understand my guests' new releases is to find out how you got started in the first place. Was there a lot of music growing up? I think I think I remember reading or hearing that your dad was a, a guitarist. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's definitely where it starts for me, and and I think I've uh, kind of figured that out and like appreciated it a lot more over the years. Kind of looking back, you know, and, and not um, taking it for granted, like. You know, when you're little, it's just your world is like all the things around you and yeah. 
you don't really question it. You're just sort of like, yeah, this is what I do. And this is my, my thing. Right. Uh, so there were always like guitars around the house. And, uh, my dad played in uh, kind of like a wedding band, like a function band kind of thing, um, parties and stuff like that. And, okay. uh, so yeah, he, he played a lot of music around the house. I remember a lot of records and tapes and things like that, all kinds of different stuff. But what I mostly remember is, uh, you know, him playing the guitar, not even necessarily for me, but me just kind of being in the room and, or being near it and watching it and like really kind of being in awe that you could, that a person could do this. You know, it wasn't just yeah. this, this like a mythology thing, like on a record or something that was made in a faraway land. You right. know, it was, oh, you can actually do this. This is a thing that people do, you know? And I, the thing I always remember like really vividly is like, you know, he would have a, a gig, like a wedding gig or something on a Friday or Saturday night. And then he'd come home late and I was little, so I'd be asleep, you know, hopefully. Yeah. Uh, and then the next morning I'd wake up and like the guitar case and the amp in the cover would be in the kitchen, you know, and these, these things that I knew made music, they would like just be in there. And I would kind of, I don't know, it was this very, like it had a hold over me, like wow. these little magic boxes full of little magic things, you know? Yeah, yeah. So I would just kind of stare at them or like be near them. And in those days, you know, we're talking the eighties here, like you could smoke inside still, which, <laughs> you know, I, I don't come from like a family of smokers, but the, the guitar case, and the amp, they would smell like cigarettes, you know, because it would be like this Friday night party in like right. 1986 or something. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so I remember that that was, it's not like a good association, but I just remember like that smell actually takes me back to like, oh yeah, that's the smell of like the guitar case or the amp or whatever, you know? Oh, that's amazing. So I still kind of get that sense, you know, but I remember like I, I would, you know, hope that like, you know, my dad would wake up, maybe he would play something for me or I probably would bug him to like plug the set it up and plug it in. And, yeah. and he would and he would play stuff for me, just, you know, simple little like minor chords or major chords. And, uh, you know, it gave me a feeling of like how music can sort of um, convey emotion in a way too. And this is all like I'm really little, you know, so these yeah. are things I think back like, yeah, not everybody has that experience and not everybody is that close to it uh, right. early on. So I'm really, I'm really uh, fortunate for them. And what's amazing is, you know, back when you're that little, you don't realize that not everybody has that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it, yeah. It just becomes yeah, part of your child. world. My parents were great. They were like always really supportive of me. Um, the music thing was cool. You know? Yeah. It's really, really nice. So when did you start playing music? Uh, what, what instrument did you start with? Well, I remember in school, like grade school, you could choose uh, where I grew up in, in Agawam, Massachusetts and Western Mass. You could pick, uh, you could either start with like violin or like flute or something. It was just like these, these two like disparate camps, like you right. could do either this one or that one and that's it. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I remember, uh, or like chorus or something, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so I remember thinking, I remember honestly thinking like, well, the guitar kind of maybe is like the violin, <laughs> you know, with the strings and it's stuff. Strings. So I was like, oh yeah, I'd like to learn that one, I guess if I have to choose, you know? Right. So I, I started on violin for a couple of years and that was, that was cool. I, I don't think I ever got that great at it, but it was, it was fun to figure out how to make noise, you know? And then they would offer like band instruments later, like, you know, trumpet, saxophone, all that stuff. And I, I picked the trombone. Oh, wow. Well, I, I picked that cause my dad told me he used to play trombone. And, and oh, I wow. Said, That's awesome. Yeah. 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 I mean, all these stories, they make me realize when I was young, I was like, yep, yeah, 
I want to be like him. You know? Yeah. Oh, that's but, great. Um, so I learned trombone. I did that for a few years. And then in tandem, when I got into high school, I started playing guitar also. Oh, okay. Um, so, uh, and then eventually I kind of dropped the horn and, and just stayed with the guitar. But, you know, guitar was never like sanctioned by school. It was, it was oh, yeah. kind of like this sort of like little bastard family thing. Like you couldn't really do guitar lessons in school. It was like just band stuff. So my dad gave me my first lesson, showed me chords and a couple little songs and how chords worked and stuff. And so I was doing that separate, the band thing at school and music, the music program at school was like horn trombone in that case. Yeah. And then guitar was like my own thing after and then eventually they let me play guitar like in the jazz band at school oh cool um, and i think i even finagled my way into into playing the guitar in the marching band at school oh. which <laughs> <laughs> wow not like marching but they would do uh they do the show in the football game oh the, yeah yeah well, all three show. of my kids do that yeah okay yeah so there's the halftime show and then so i think i was able to talk him into doing like something with a guitar feature. Oh, one nice. year. So I remember like the whole season I could like just play guitar in the, in the middle of the, the 50 yard line. Yes, you're in the pit, huh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it was right in the middle up front. Cause you, you couldn't move with it. So right. the whole band's like doing these marching like craziness behind me. And I'm just kind of up front trying to wail. It was pretty fun. I remember that. Oh, that is awesome. You know, <laughs> my, it's actually marching season as we record, this is about to start. And my daughter's a drum major this year. And yeah, it's uh, an autumn, autumn thing. I think about it with, I don't, yep. I don't really do like sports. I'm, I'm a big Red Sox fan, but I don't okay. really know too many sports, but I do know football is like autumn. And I can remember that because of doing those shows, you know, smelling the leaves and the air and that kind of thing. It's magical, man. There is just something about it. I don't, I, I love marching season. Uh, my, all three of my kids have gone through it. My youngest is a senior this year and she's, uh, she's the drum major. So it's just, oh, cool. yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's our last year of marching season. Okay. It's a little sad. Better enjoy it. Yeah. Oh, we go to every <laughs> single competition. It's ridiculous. Wow. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Without a healthy mind, being truly happy and at peace is hard. The good news is, therapy works. But what is therapy exactly? It's whatever you want it to be. Maybe you're not feeling motivated right now and would like some tools to help. Or maybe you're feeling insecure in relationships or at work, not dealing well with the stress. Whatever you need, it's time to stop being ashamed of normal human struggles and start feeling better because you deserve to be happy. And now you don't have to worry about finding an in-person therapist near you to help. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Try doing that in person. So join the millions of people who are seeing what online therapy is really about. It's always a good time to invest in yourself because you are your greatest asset. And a special offer to Performance Anxiety listeners, you can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com slash performance anxiety. That's betterhelp.com slash performance anxiety. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this podcast. But, all right, so when did you start 
playing in bed and deciding to uh, play out in in public? Well, that would probably be in, in high school too. Around this time, I had some friends in high school that did music, and you know, I, I just met them in school, and uh, we we were friends anyways, and so we were trying to write songs together. I think that was with a couple of different, there were probably two or three different bands, and I remember uh, right away it was about trying to write our own music, oh, which, okay. which is kind of interesting too, as you kind of meet other people and, and look back and stuff, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't really cover band stuff. It was, you know, we, we all had different bands we liked and we had records we liked and in common. And I think those guys were writing their own songs. So to us, it made sense. Like, yeah, we should try to write our own songs too. It's okay. funny because some people will see that and they'll say, yeah, I love these songs. We should learn to play these songs. And then I think some other people go, I love these bands. They write their own music. We should write our own music. You know? Yeah, I think you're right. And there's nobody telling you what to do at that age, usually about it. So people just kind of figure it out one way or another. Right. It's weird how it happens. But so there were a couple of bands like that. And I think a few of them did like, uh, you know, like little high school party functions kind of thing, um, yeah. or, or like house parties or whatever. But the first thing I, but the first time I remember doing like a real gig, what I considered like a real gig was when my dad would ask me to sub for him in his wedding band. Oh, wow. Yeah. They were called summer breeze. And I remember they were like, I, I don't know if he was, uh, I don't really ask him about it, but I, I can't remember if he was trying to phase himself out of having to go out on the weekends and do this <laughs> or if he was just trying to give me a confidence boost or whatever, but probably a combination. But at some point he would be like, yeah, you want to do this? Uh, we did a couple together. I remember that like some Christmas parties. Oh, nice. And uh, so he was next to me, like t telling me the chords and stuff. And that band is all his friends. So I'm trying not to embarrass him. And I, right. you know, they're, they're like way older than me. So I'm trying to keep up. And, <laughs> and then I remember he sent me on a couple uh, by myself, you know, so yeah, it was, it was, it was cool. I mean, I learned a lot. It, mostly I was really nervous. <laughs> I, and, bet, uh, yeah. I was talking about this the other day. I don't think I've done a lot of shows and stuff since then, you know, luckily, and some have been like crazy situations or whatever, but I don't think I've still ever been as nervous on a gig as I was <laughs> those first ones where I was filling in for him, like wow. trying not to make a mistake, you know? Oh gosh. Well, yeah. I mean, he meant so much to you, you know, it meant a lot. And, uh, it was, you know, I already kind of knew that concept of like, if you screw up, you know, you don't get called back or it looks bad on the other person or like that was our, for whatever reason I knew that already at wow. like 15, 16. <laughs> um, but you know, it'd be like, I, I, oh, am I going to come in at the right spot for the solo and Johnny be good? Or am I going to forget the, uh, what's that Procol Harum tune? You hear it all the, the weddings. Oh, uh, Nights in White Satin. Something like that. Am I going to forget those chords? Yeah. Or, you know. <laughs> but I think I did all right. So was that when you kind of got the bug to become a professional musician? That was what, well, I mean, that was when I knew that I didn't want to do anything else. Okay. And I don't know that it was so clear that I could do it like as a job necessarily. I, I just remember like, this is really fun and this is really and kind of beyond fun like um like yeah fun but you know it, i found it fulfilling in some okay. way that you know maybe some like high, high school kids find sports fulfilling or they've or whatever you know like when people find their thing i felt like i really clicked with this thing and i was like yeah. wow okay i need to i think i thought i need to find a way to keep doing this 
but I didn't okay. really know what, what that meant, you know? So is that what, what brought you to uh, Rutgers to study jazz or was it yeah. something else? Yeah. I knew I had to go to college. I mean, I think I, for a while I kind of thought maybe I'd go into, uh, I had a couple other career choices. I was either going to, so it's just such a trip back memory lane. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like all my high school memories. Like I remember my, uh, in my mind, my career choices were like, okay, maybe I would like to be an architect, which I don't know, but I'm not really that good with math. So that was kind of that. Oh, okay. and, then, and then the thing I was really thinking about was that I wanted to be a, a park ranger for like the national uh, park service. Oh, wow. I thought I, the idea that I could be like uh, in Yellowstone for like months at a time, and just coming out to get the mail or <laughs> something that's like really attractive, you know, just hanging out in um, Yellowstone for a while. Yeah. Yeah. Just, yeah. Just kind of keeping tabs on the land, <laughs> you know, but, um, <laughs> you know, but, but then I was, I was thinking like, well, what do I really like to do? And that's music. And so, um, I thought, well, maybe I should just try to do music, but I think, uh, and I'm happy with my, you know, my parents were kind of like, you know, they didn't say it explicitly, but I think they would have maybe not as been as supportive if I was like, oh, I'm not going to go to college, but, yeah. but, but I wanted to learn a lot anyway. I wanted to learn about it and it seemed like an easy way to learn about music all in one place. So yeah, I ended up going to, to Rutgers. I met a guitar teacher uh, named Ted Dunbar, who was down there at the time. He's passed away a long time since, Okay, uh, but he, uh, he taught at like a summer jazz camp up at UMass Amherst that I went to. And uh, I really loved the way he talked about music, you know, and sort of like really uh, admitted this fact that it was this really emotional thing. And how do, how do you draw these different feelings out of music? He was a very jazz, jazz focused player and teacher, which is great. I mean, I love all kinds of stuff. And, and uh, I learned a lot from him. You know, he used to play in Tony Williams' Lifetime Band. Uh, oh, cool. Yeah, he did all these amazing gigs. And he was really cool. So I got about a year and a half with him before he passed away. Uh, and at that point I just stayed there and at Rutgers in New Jersey. Cause it was, it was, I had friends there and it was near New York. Oh yeah. So I out, you know, yeah. Which I, I got of, all the time. Yeah. I, I got a lot of value out of that. Like going to just hear tons of music and meet other people my age that were listening to music in, in New York that, you know, weren't at school or weren't at the same school or whatever, yeah. uh, you know, people I still am in touch with. And, uh, and then I could go back and do my classwork and learn about harmony and stuff like that. It, and it was, it was cool, you know, and I was able to gig a bunch in school and, and uh, do okay. So yeah. That oh, yeah that's that's some cool places there. I mean, the, the court tavern melody, those are some awesome places to play. Oh, okay. You spent time in New Brunswick. Oh yeah. All the, all the spots now. Yeah. Yeah. My yeah, wow, court I, buddies, uh, I, we're, we're, I think we're, we're pretty close to the same age. I had friends who were playing in New Brunswick for years. Oh wow. Uh, okay. Uh, I don't remember the band. I don't know if you, I, I don't know what, what you were listening to back then, but I had friends in sticks and stones. Um, X number five, uh, the fire still burns muscalunge. Oh man. So all these wow. like, new Brunswick punk bands. Yeah. That's cool. Wow. So, yeah. So Dude. did you go to records with jazz in mind or were you, did you pick up on the jazz while you were there? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I'd already been, been like into learning jazz, okay. but I'd also, you know, I mean, I'd come up listening to all kinds of stuff. Like I, you know, like the, the, uh, I hate to use the word, but the grunge yeah. <laughs> scene was in full effect when I was in high school, you know, and, yep. and labels aside, a lot of that music, like I love, you know, like Nirvana was like huge for me and like, I think everybody else my age, you know, 
Um, but it kind of like led me back to, to learn about other bands, uh, especially a lot of like West coast bands in that, in that kind of scene in that time. And then, um, all sorts of different kinds of music, but then I was also checking out John Coltrane and uh, Miles Davis, and I really liked those Electric Miles bands back then for sure. Uh, early on, you know, I still do, but early on, that was the thing because I was like, oh, it's kind of a rock band, but it's kind of like this jazz thing. Um, so that was an easy entrance for me, and another easy entrance for me was the Jeff Beck album Wired that my dad had because he plays on that record a version of Goodbye Pork Pie Hat, which is a Charles Mingus tune written for Lester Young, right? And so I love that song. And I just, I didn't realize it wasn't a Jeff Beck tune for a while. I don't think until I was like looking at the record and going, oh, who's this Charles Mingus guy? So I went out and got some Mingus records. So, you know, when you come up like that and there's all this stuff swirling around, I think it becomes confusing when you're kind of confronted with another part of the way other people see like music and they're like, so, so what kind of music do you play? Right. <laughs> and you go, it's like asking you like, what's who, so what's your favorite baseball team? Cause you can't have two. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and I remember that's like such a bizarre idea. Like, what do you mean? What kind of music do I play? Like a music, lot. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But the college thing was like, you know, I liked working with Ted and, and I knew like you could learn, important stuff from jazz and you could learn important stuff from rock and you can learn important stuff from classical music. And, um, I already kind of had that feeling. So when I wanted to go continue studying with Ted and, and go to college for music, you know, the choices are you do classical or you do jazz, right? You know, there's no rock music major or whatever, you know, right. I mean, not, at least not at that time at any school that was in my budget, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah. So, so I just, it just seemed obvious, like, well, I'm not really going to classical guitar is like amazing and gorgeous, but it's, it's, whole, it's its own thing. Yeah. You know, like I would have to, I would have had to like completely start over the way I'd been learning guitar to really play classical. I mean, I can kind of fake some stuff and it's really, <laughs> really gorgeous. And I like trying to learn some of those pieces, but you know, I'm not going to say I'm actually a classical guitarist at all. So it made more sense for me to just go, well, I can do the jazz program. And you get, still get to talk about impro improvisation and stuff like that. So yeah. it made sense. Yeah. You had, I, I was reading about a couple of some of the accomplishments and I was curious if this was the, uh, before college, during college. So you were a finalist for the Fish Middleton Jazz Scholarship Competition. Uh, one of seven international guitarists to compete in the Gibson Jazz Guitar Composition at Montreux Jazz Festival. And you won an ASCAP Young Composer Award. Yeah, those, uh, the, the last one was just right after college, but okay. the other two were during college, yeah. Wow. I can imagine being in a college age kid and playing at, at Montreux Jazz Festival. Well, I'll tell you what else. Now you imagine doing that and you look in the front row and right in the front row, in the middle of the front row, sitting in like this giant throne is George Benson with his arms folded, oh <laughs> kind of staring at you. <laughs> and I, didn't, I didn't really expect that. I remember I walked out on stage and I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. So no big deal. You yeah. know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, just, just another guy in the crowd. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Oh no, he, I got to meet him after that. He was really cool. Well, he was old friends with, with Ted Dunbar, my teacher too. So, oh, okay. so I got to talk with him about, uh, Ted had, had actually passed on at that point. So I got to talk to him uh, about Ted for a while. So it was really cool. Yeah, oh, was, that is awesome. Very sweet. 
So after college, you moved to New York City. Was that to find work as a musician or was it to just... Well, it was just to kind of keep playing and it didn't really last last that long actually at that point. You know, a lot of music I liked was being played by people that lived in New York and I just sort of had been around it from being in New Jersey at right. college. So it just sort of seemed like, yeah, I'll just go there. I want to take the train back and forth and you know, get some dumb job or whatever. <laughs> and, uh, and this is, um, I mean, this is like the summer of 2001. Um, and I ended up, I ended up living in Jersey city, right across the, uh, right across the Hudson from oh, downtown. Okay. Manhattan. And I remember, I remember like, you know, it's this little September 11th story, but I remember like going outside to move my car for uh, street cleaning that morning. And it's like 7am or whatever. And I go to move my car, you know, I wake up, move my car so I don't get a ticket and then hope I can fall back asleep. Right. Right. So I go out and I'm moving my car and it's like in Jersey city is like pandemonium. There's like just people running around the street, like screaming, like, and I, you know, I'm like not privy to what's going on. And I'm, yeah. I'm kind of like, man, this is some stuff's going down, whatever it is. So I find a parking space and I park and I, you know, I'm half asleep and I, I'm like walking back to my building and there's some guys like running by and I go, Hey, 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 uh, is something going on? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Oh, wow. And so he, he tells me the deal and I was like, what? That's crazy. And then, so I, I was on the, I think I was on the bottom floor of this two story building and I went in and out the window, you could actually see, uh, you know, in the distance, you could see, uh, the, the towers yeah. kind of, yeah. and so you could see all the smoke. It was really, it was really bizarre as a mess uh, kind of thing. That um, is, God, yeah, I, it, was, it was heavy. It was really heavy, you know? Yeah. And, uh, like obviously. And then, um, at that point it was actually funny too, because in that same kind of zone, I, I've, I was having this idea, like, uh, like I didn't, how should I say this? I knew I wanted to only do music, but I, I didn't know if it was like a truly like honest thing that I needed to do. Okay. So I was having these ideas, like, you know, I, I would go out to hear a lot of music back then. Um, I still try to as much as I can. And I would have these moments of like, you know, these like super young 20 judgmental egotistical moments where I'd, I'd be like listening to something. I'd be like, man, I feel like this band is pretty good, but like, I think this one guy, I feel like his heart's not in it or something, you know? Wow. And, and it, it wasn't so like brutal like that, right. you know, just like a passing <laughs> thought in my mind or something. But, but as it pertained to me, I remember thinking like, I never want to be giving that impression to anybody which of course like you don't, if that's not your vibe, I learned later. But, but in my mind, I was like, I need to make sure that I'm, I'm a hundred percent supposed to be doing this, not 90%, not 95% because I don't want to be the, you know, I don't want to be like the, the um, person bringing down the music. You right. Know? And like, maybe you're just unaware. You're like, Oh yeah, this is better than being a trash collector or something. So I'll just keep trying to do this as long as I can, even if I'm kind of faking it or whatever, yeah. you know, I, it's a weird thought. I, I'm sure nobody I saw actually felt that way, but just in my mind, it was this self-reflective kind of thing. Like, okay, I want to make sure that I'm not the jive dude in the band because that sucks, you know? Right. Right. So my solution, which is even more bizarre, my solution was like, I'm going to quit playing. And if oh. I start playing again in a natural way, like an unforced way, then that means that I was meant to play music. Okay. A really roundabout Thing, I, you know. I can kind of understand that though. If you love something, set it free. I did, <laughs> right. I did that. Thing. See, I, I did that with photography. 
Oh, okay. I went to college for photography. I did it for like 12, 15 years. And I got so burnt out on doing the same. I, I was the guy just phoning it in after a while, just because it was all the same. It was all weddings and, and I hate weddings. I never, oh, okay. Yeah. Right. Right, right. I was living in Southeast Alabama at the time. And so there's not a huge market for somebody with, uh, who's gone to college for photography. So, so mm. I ended up doing whatever work I could get. And it was for sure. a lot of portraits, school photos, things at weddings and I just got burnt out on it and, and I just I put it down for a while my wife and I got married had kids started a career and mm-hmm. over the, I mean I still would do it for myself but not professionally in any sense and I've just kind of started doing uh, I've, I've figured out my what I love doing is music photography so I'll go to concerts and I'll, I'll get a media pass and I'll go and I'll shoot the band Right. So that's, that's how I got back into it with a passion. So yeah, I know what you're saying. And I bet it feels like more like a, an honest thing for you. Like, Oh, this is what it was supposed to be like or something. You yeah. Know? Now I'm not getting paid for any of it, but I still get to do it. So. <laughs> well, we don't need to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> but I've gotten to see some awesome bands, it's a lot of people that I've had on the podcast. So it's, uh, yeah, that's cool. It's, that's great. It's a blast. So, We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Hey guys, I want to talk to you about socks for a second. Why not? It's a music podcast. But I tried a pair of socks from Boldfoot and loved them. I've only worn them once because my kids have stolen them. So in my household, that's the best endorsement I can give. And I guess it's fitting because the design I chose was Jailbait. Wait, Jailbird. The design I chose was Jailbird. I might keep that in. The socks are 100% American made and 5% of all proceeds go to veteran charities. It makes sense seeing that Boldfoot is a family and veteran owned company. They have a huge variety of styles. So check out boldfoot.com and buy some of the best socks you've ever slapped on your feet and help veterans while you're at it. That's boldfoot.com. So, so what made you get back into music after your hiatus? Well, so I I, uh, I moved back to Western Massachusetts for a couple of years, and I, I you know I would like I didn't like get rid of the guitars. I had the guitar and stuff, and I would I would pick it up sometimes and play it. But I was uh, I remember like I was working some dumb jobs. And I remember like delivering phone books for a while. That was oh like man, I sold I sold ads for the Yellow Pages when I first moved up moved up to Virginia. Oh really? Yeah, <laughs> we've got this weird thing going here tonight that sounds better than actually like physically delivering them though like, yeah. that was just a nightmare like the, nothing about delivering phone books is set up to be easy no <laughs> like no. from filling your car to like watching your car like lower by like met several inches on the shocks to then <laughs> driving them and and they had i remember they had this rule like you couldn't throw the phone book you had to get out and put the phone book on the step like this particular phone book company you know and Wow. And they said, if we get calls that you throw in the phone book, then we're not going to be able to pay you, you know? Oh, wow. <laughs> it's just like all this bizarre stuff. So I was like, okay, whatever. So I did that for a little while. <laughs> uh, anyways, point being, um, you know, I wasn't trying to like be a guitarist or play or whatever, but what would happen is eventually I, um, I would start playing again, just kind of naturally. Like I would, and it wasn't with a practicing mindset. It wasn't like, okay, I got to practice this, this, and this. It was just like, oh, I heard this song on the radio today in the car that I really liked that I've never heard before. 
and maybe it's like, you know, just some pop song, just some candy pop song kind of thing, but yeah, maybe it'd be fun. I, something about it stuck in my ear. I'd like to learn the chords. So I'd go home and I'd find the song and I'd play along with it or whatever, or I'd hear it again and try to memorize it or something. And, uh, and I would do that and then that would be it. And then I'd have my dinner and go to bed or whatever. And so, but that kept happening and it kept happening so frequently to a point where I was like, Oh, I'm sitting here trying to play guitar every day and I'm just doing whatever I want. You know, I mean, I've always liked practicing all kinds of different stuff, but it, it wasn't, there was no agenda and it felt really natural. And in that, after a little bit of doing that, I took that as the sign that I'd kind of been like, Oh, okay. So here I am. I tried to get rid of this thing or I tried to get away from it. And it came back in a, in a different way. It kind of snuck up on me in a way where it made itself feel much more important than it already was. And it was already important. Right. Okay. So, uh, so I think I stayed up there for another year or so playing with as many people as I could find. And then uh, I moved, then I moved back to New York. Okay. And then I was there for about 15 years or so. Yeah. Okay. So when did you start? Uh, I guess the best way to phrase it. I saw your first, looks like your first uh, album credit is JC Falk. Is that <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's right. So, okay. So how did you get into the recording aspect of it? Were you just gigging around and somebody suggested it or were you called in or? Well, that, that, let's see that one. That was probably the, well, that was the first thing I did that actually became like a, a, a record. Uh, and it was this guy, JC Falk, who I, I knew like peripherally through some other friends actually from New Brunswick. And he was like a, he was like a booking agent or something, but he, he didn't live there. I think he lived in Savannah cause I, that's where I had to go okay. eventually to meet, meet up with him. But he was putting out this record, putting together some bands for some people. And I, I got into this fold. And so when he was making his own record, I, I got to play on it. Okay. Uh, but I had to go to Savannah to do some tracks. I remember. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. 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 It was funny. He was a nice guy. I, I don't <laughs> even know if that album's around. I don't even know if I have a copy. I, I have no idea if you can find it or whatever, but I was looking for it on YouTube on it for to, you to do hear. it. I couldn't find, I saw some JC Fox up, but no, oh, like comedy. Yeah. Really? But no, Whoa. no, nothing, nothing of, from a place within. So I don't. Okay. Maybe it's lost to time. I don't know. It might but, be. Um, but I do, I mean, I think it wasn't, I don't think that was like, okay, here's my first time in a studio. I think I'd done a bunch of like projects with people that never turned into records. Like people were making demos or little demo EPs to try to get gigs and like okay. they would maybe book a studio to get it to sound like real pro, you know? Yeah. Because also this is, this would have been really early, like 2000, 2001, 99 or something. Like, I don't think the home studio thing was what it is now, you no, know, it, like, for sure. you still, like if you wanted the thing to sound good, you'd book time and you'd go to a real place and let the pros handle it, you know? Right. Yeah. Um, nobody's Billy. So I do remember like going to places and like doing little projects here and there, but, but eventually I think, yeah, you just, for me, it just was always about trying to make great music and whoever that was with, if it was a project I was, I was doing and they were into it, they would, it seems the natural progression that they then want to record it. So that was usually how it came about. So was Tin Bag the first project that you did that you recorded? Like a, a first solo thing where it was you up front? The, the first solo thing I did was a record called Canto. And that is a solo record of all prepared guitar music. I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was the very first thing I did. And okay. I remember 
I remember think I remember about that. That was really fun to do, and uh, we can talk about that in a second. But I remember thinking like, it's probably a little weird to make your first record just be like solo prepared guitar. Yes, yeah. <laughs> prepared guitar. <laughs> actually exploring a lot so again that natural progression it was like well this is what i'm doing in my free time this is you know i was listening to a lot of fred frith and uh, Derek bailey and and you know sonny Chirac. although i don't know if he really did a lot of preparations but his noise thing was really influential to me in that moment you know still is yeah uh, so that was kind of what was on my radar so what i was working on it made sense like well i think i have some some individualistic kind of angle on this view and I'd like to try it out. So that, that was why that happened first. You know, okay. that was just where I was. I wasn't doing anything else that I thought was like, so uh, that I could confidently say like, Oh yeah, this is an, this is like a very personal contribution to this right now outside of that. So it made sense to do it. You know. So what were you doing as a prepared guitar? I know uh, I've had some composers on who play prepared piano, Mm-hmm. But what, so how would you apply that to a guitar? Well, there's a great, there's a great set of pieces by uh, John Zorn, the composer and yeah. improviser called, it's called the book of heads. Okay. And there's a, there's a great recording of all these works by uh, Mark Rebo, who uh, I, I think that's probably the original recording of the, of the work. I think Zorn wrote them for um, Chadbourne, like, in mind, Eugene Chadbourne. Okay. Or at least I think there's an inscription and I have the score here. So maybe it's just the inscription, but I think Rebo's made an album of it. I think that's the first album, but so that, and they're all written by Zorn and that's like a study in applying preparation to guitar. Okay. Um, I mean really like genius, genius stuff, the, the way it works, but you know, the basic idea is not different from prepared piano, which if you're familiar with that, you're familiar with the John Cage pieces for sure. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, yeah, the basic rundown is you attach little like bits of like trash or whatever to different parts of the strings, not trash. I mean, it could be whatever yeah. things that kind of accentuate different aspects of the sound. It makes the string resonate in a different way. Maybe it gives it a different percussive quality. Maybe it uh, affects the decay of the note or maybe it brings out different overtones in the string, stuff like that, you know? Right. And, uh, it's a pretty easy, uh, analog to take that piano idea and put it to guitar because it's still on the string. Right. So for me, it was a combination for the Canto record is a combination of like uh, alligator clips and nuts and bolts screwed to different parts of the strings to bring different overtones out. There's like a um, kind of a percussive sort of like a, like a tine, like you would find on a, on a um, kalimba oh, know, okay. thre- threaded through the strings. Oh, wow. Uh, I think there was some balloons involved at one point. Um, <laughs> And that's like, that's like, I'm straight up stealing that from the book of heads. There's a lot of balloon work in that. Really? <laughs> yeah. What's, yeah. What's studio session without balloon work? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I, I don't think I put it as a double on the, on the critics. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> missed opportunity. <laughs> and that, that could be your next album, Balloon Work. <laughs> Let me write Pick that down. <laughs> what do you play? The balloon. <laughs> Anyways, all right. So, but you know, I, I I still keep some of that stuff. I I, don't, I haven't done like a full on prepared guitar concert in a while. I did one a couple years ago. Actually, I did a set. I forget where. But uh, you know, I have uh, my little practice area back here. I have a chopstick that I still utilize quite a bit. Oh, cool. I have a couple clips I'll put on strings still, but, but it's fun to try to incorporate that into different sort of different types of music where it's not just like, Oh yeah, I'm going to a avant-garde, you know, free form weirdo noise show. Of course the guy's going to have a chopstick and his guitar. Like you could be playing with a, a singer songwriter or a rock band or you can incorporate it. I mean, you know, Sonic youth of course is like famous for all that kind of True, stuff, but, yeah. but trying to figure out how to, how to combine the world of like, normal technique and extended technique into this amalgamation of just, again, getting back to that thing of like just music, you don't have to worry about what it is or, you know, just, I don't want to have any limitations and, or rules on anything. So those kinds right. of things that can go hand in hand to me. All right. So that brings up something I wanted to ask you about. I, I heard a story about a time that you went to go into the studio and work on an album and the producer get everything set up, left, you played for an hour and the music wasn't there. Does that change the approach to everything you do afterwards? You're talking about my friend Chris Schlarp. Yes, I am. Runs, uh, Big Ego <laughs> Studio. Big yeah. Ego Record. That and was the first. Uh, that's a true story. And uh, that's the first. Um, that was the first day of recording for the what ended up being the Wallflowers record, which is the first uh, record I got to do with Jim Kellner and Mike Watt. But I knew I wanted to put a couple solo pieces on there. So the first day was just solo. So and I and that was actually the first time really working with Chris as a producer and, and engineer. We'd oh we'd boy. become friends pretty quickly. Uh, I think he uh, I think we were like in touch over email or something. You know, it's like you have those friends that you've known for a long time. And like in this case, like we're so close. I don't even remember how we met. Yeah, it's just it sort of seems like I know he he hasn't always been there, but in my mind, like, yeah, we've known each other for a thousand years, you know, yeah, <laughs> but that wasn't always the case. <laughs> so this was, this was the first time that we worked together. And, uh, I had made records before under my own name with the uh, fresh sound, new talent label and over in Barcelona and stuff. And I guess. And so, uh, I had some ideas about what I wanted to do. I will, I will say this. I'd never worked with a, like an actual quote unquote, uh, capital P producer before you okay. know? the decisions about what was going to get recorded and what was going to sound good or what I wanted the vibe of the thing to be like was always from me making the records, you know, okay. which which has its ups and downs, but, uh, <laughs> you know, and so, uh, so I remember I went in there and, and he was like, so what do you want to do? And I was like, well, I got some ideas. So I figured I would just get set up and, uh, you know, just improvise for a while and then we can sort through it. And, uh, I think he was, I remember him kind of looking at me and he goes like, okay, 
<laughs> and then he, he did, the, you know, so I didn't think anything of it. I set up and, you know, I did that. And I think, I think maybe even split at one point, like he went out to lunch or whatever. <laughs> and uh, I was like, it'll be fine. I'll just go get some where, lunch. Yeah. Where did he, is he gone? Is he still <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I played and then he came back and, you know, I was like, all right, that might be cool. Let's go check out what we got. I got yeah. the, the room and I was like, all right, should we, should we check some of it out? And he was like, oh man, you know, uh, I don't know what happened to it. You know, I, I, uh, I, I don't, the, the, the actual details are escaping me, but it was something like, yeah, I, I guess I didn't record it or like I recorded it and something that's happened to the heart. It was, you know, it really seemed real, you yeah. know, like he, he like actually he honestly I, thought he had recorded it. Isn't that, was it making, yeah, yeah. Like it was just this huge mistake. And I remember being like, what the heck? This is total. <laughs> bull you know yeah. in my mind and i was like okay uh and then like i went outside and i like walked around the block and i was like oh man this is gonna be a huge mistake oh what have i done you uh, know uh, <laughs> i walk around the block kind of stewing in my own little universe you know and then i have this i have this realization i was like well you know what if i don't know what to do maybe i should go back and ask him what he thinks we should do because that's his his deal right? right that's what a producer does right i don't know so I go back and we have this little talk and he's like, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, you know, yeah, all is not lost. You know, let's go back. And I think at that point I understood it could be a collaboration with someone that's not actually playing with you. You know, I, I never really got that before. And I didn't really have the opportunity to, to work with anyone like that before. So it was a really important moment, you know, to go like, oh yeah, this friend of mine can help me do something that I wouldn't have been able to come up with on my own. Right. That's why it's cool. If you find somebody to work with in that role, you know, it's not just like, Oh, this, this guy who's just pushing buttons in the other room. Like, right. Yeah. I mean, it can be that at its worst, you know, but like ideally if it's a collaborative thing. And so I understood with him for the first time, what it's really like to work with a producer. And it was because I had that moment of like, well, what I just did is gone. And then I sort of like gave him a lot of shit about that. Like, I know you were, you know, I knew you were faking it if I recorded it. And I think for like years it was like, yeah, no, I, I, I really lost it. And then he sent me some files, maybe not that long ago. And I was listening to him and I'm listening and I'm listening and I'm like, what is this? And I've realized it's that first hour. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't heard it in like years. Oh my gosh. I still he still won't tell me if he did it on purpose or not. You know? <laughs> <laughs> He's a good producer. <laughs> so how did you get Jim Keltner and Mike Watt involved in the project? Well, the, um, that idea was mine, but again, Chris Flarp kind of pulled the strings and, and made, made the actual physical thing happen. Okay. Um, he, uh, Chris had just opened his studio in Long Beach, California called big ego studios and he wanted to start a record label to go along with it big ego records and so i think he had he'd asked me if i would be interested in doing something for him and i had been making records for a label out of barcelona called fresh sound new talent which um i was really ha happy to do like he uh, this guy jordy pujol runs that and he's a he's a really generous guy and i think he's probably one of the last people in the business that actually listens to like every demo he receives and wow. if he wants to if he likes the music, then he'll work something out with you. Um, oh, that's and that's awesome. how it happened with me. There's no, no reason it would have. Otherwise I sent him something and he listened to it and he said, yeah, let's do something. So, so oh, I ended up doing, uh, 
three, three or four, four records for him. And, um, was that the, with your the quartet? Yeah, it's quartet stuff. And then the last one was a trio called Spectre with, uh, okay. Jerome Harris on bass. That's really awesome. material i i love that was the second fresh sound record yeah that's yeah, a, nathan you. i love that i love nathan that's a great song oh yeah thank you yeah that was written for my my friend nathan <laughs> <laughs> um with Jordy for Fresh Sound and I think we were we were starting to talk about a fifth one and Chris had asked me about doing something for his label and uh, that was probably the first time like in a musical setting I was like oh man is somebody going to be bugged that I'm doing something with somebody else mm. um, and I kind of felt like uh, I think Jordy like liked when people were like just doing stuff for him I, I've never talked to him about it so I don't know but that was just sort of the impression I got and then I think I did the Wall of Flowers record with Chris. And then when it came out, there was like um, very little little contact available with Jordy after that. So oh. the writing was on the wall. Yeah. But it was it was okay because, um, you know, I felt like I could do whatever I wanted with Chris. I felt like I could do whatever I wanted with Jordy too, but it was just a different, it was just a different scene. And I, I wanted to try something yeah. different. That was all it was. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't better or worse, but I was like, yeah, it could be interesting to do something different in a different way. So yeah, you got to so change told, things up every once in a while. Yeah. It keeps it healthy and fresh and you can't feel too bad about that kind of stuff because in the end you, you got to do what is best for, in this case, the music. You know? Exactly. So, uh, I said, yeah. <laughs> so I said, yeah, Chris, yeah. I like, thank you for asking me. I like to do a record, but I only want to do it if it's going to be something totally different. And so I'll give you a little more background on this because this is, turns into a story also. All right. Which is good for a podcast. You know? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so the, the deal was, here's another like bizarre thing. Looking back, like I'd always thought, you know, when you uh, buy a record or you, um, you go see a band or whatever, you know, there's a band. And for whatever reason, maybe outside, maybe outside of something like an orchestra, I thought like every band was like, they've just been best friends forever. That's right. why they're a band. I mean, when we were talking about high school, who did I start my first bands with? My friends in high school, you know? Exactly. Who did I start bands with in college? The people I was hanging out with, you know? And I would see people, they'd kind of like, they would just hire like a famous guy and give him like a bunch of money and they'd make a record with him or something like that. And then, you know, I kind of had my spidey sense tingling like that seems kind of a little bull, you know, but, but whatever, I don't know, you know? Right. And I, I think I heard like albums that were maybe pretty obviously conceived of in that way. And I think in my mind, the music wasn't like that great or 
not at least the ones that I had heard. And, you know, again, just being really young and opinionated about stuff. Um, and so I remember thinking like, yeah, so I guess the real deal is like you start a band with your friends and that's how you get good music. Okay. So I'm, right. I'm like in my thirties now. Right. right. And I'm still, I think this for whatever reason, yeah. <laughs> you know, just, I've got it in my mind. Like this is the right way to do it. Anything else is, is going to not sound a hundred percent. So I avoided that a long time. So I would, I would not make records unless I'd been able to like hang out with people and get to know them and maybe do a little, little mini tour and okay. have a bunch of dinners and hang, you know, I was like, okay, we're friends now. Hey, maybe we should make a record. And that was always like, Oh, I did it. You know, <laughs> that's what I always thought about every, every band. And so, um, there's an older, uh, a little older, older than me guitar player, kind of a uh, friend of mine who, who's taught me a lot. His name is David Torn. And, uh, I remember talking to him one day, I was at his studio. We must've been, uh, mastering a mixing or mastering a project of mine maybe the maybe the specter album he mastered and, and i was up there with him for that anyways that, that's not really important what's important is um i remember asking him something about his first ecm record which is called cloud about mercury mm -hmm. and that that album has uh bill bruford tony levin and uh mark eichen i think I'm almost hundred percent positive that's the band. Okay. But so I remember asking him like, yeah, uh, it's a pretty, really heavy band or something. Like it's, how did you end up meeting those guys? And I thought he was going to say like, oh yeah, well we'd been friends for like two decades before that or whatever. <laughs> yeah. But what he ended up telling me, this is the important part. What he ended up telling me is that he'd never met any of those guys before they made the record or before he asked them to do the record. I think he even like wrote Bruford a letter and sent it overseas or whatever. Oh, wow. Yeah, and I think uh, maybe Mick Karn was supposed to be the original bassist on that, but he was too busy or something. And there's all these stories. But anyways, the upshot was like, I was sitting there in my, my mind exploding, going like, you didn't know these guys for like years and years and years? You weren't like best friend? He was like, no, I was really nervous. And I'd never, you know, I, I didn't wow. know any of them. And that for me, that, so the light bulb was like, wait a minute, that's a great record. So you, maybe you don't have to be like friends for decades to make a good record. And keep in mind, I'm like 32 or 33 <laughs> or something, you know, like when finally this thing goes off, you know, like an idiot. That was right before I think I started talking to Schlarb about this record. So when he asked me what I wanted to do to get back to the original story, um, I said, yeah, I would like to, but I want to do something totally different. I want to try making a record with people I've never met before and maybe who've never met each other and see if I can try to make a good record without people that are my friends. Right. Okay. You know, but it also, but you know, Chris was my friend though, and he was a producer, but so I guess there's a little uh, loophole there, but um, so anyway, so he was like, well, what do you want to do? And in my mind, just thinking about it, I was thinking like, I think it's really bizarre that uh, nobody's ever tried to have Watt and Keltner play together. Cause I've listened <laughs> to them countless projects on my record player for four decades, you know, like I know I don't know them, but I know there's certain things about both of their styles playing that like really speak to me and in my mind would fit together like a glove, you know? Okay. And so I remember like thinking like, man, it's so weird. Nobody's thought about this yet, you know? <laughs> so I told him that was, that was the idea. And then I think we like laughed and laughed and laughed. And then, that, you know, it's like, yeah, <laughs> right. 
And then like, so we'd kind of revisit this like harebrained scheme over the next six to eight months or something. And then I think at one point we were trying to just call each other's bluff, like, well, okay, so are we actually going to do this? You know? And I knew Chris uh, had done some projects with Watt, so he knew him. And then I think Chris also tracked down Jim through um, some acquaintances or something. Okay. And so the wheels just started turning and we found a date. Uh, I think I sent out some demos that maybe he sent them and they listened to. And, and this is like another mystery that I've never really asked them about, like why they agreed to do this project. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, like I'm totally thankful. And I learned so much from those guys in so many ways. And, uh, you know, I, I can, I'm like indebted, like up to my teeth to both of them, but I can only assume they heard something and they were like, okay, this sounds interesting. And that's really cool. I mean, that's a good lesson to remember. Like it still is about the music, you know, for, for guys like that yeah. who have in the sense that they've done all this music for decades and, th and it's all great music. Maybe it's all great music because they really just want to make great music, yeah. <laughs> you know, like there's no, uh, there's no head games or like right. smoke and mirrors. It's just like, they want to make great music and they keep finding ways to do it. Yeah. And uh, luckily these albums are kind of the benefactors, some of that stuff. So that, that was how that happened. So the first album, Wall of Flowers, that was, mm -hmm. that was all done in one day? Yeah, yeah, 2019. Jeez. Um, yeah, maybe, uh, I forget when, if it was maybe late spring or something or summertime or something. That's June. amazing to me. That It's such a great album. I I'm not a data point. I love that song. Title track, Wall of Flowers, is great hospital song. These oh, are just you. awesome tracks. I can't believe that. It was, I mean, was any of it planned beforehand, or were, were you guys just improvising the whole thing? I know you said you'd had a couple things that you wanted to do before, but... No, I had a stack of music I came with, and we uh, did almost none of it. <laughs> 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 so, I, I mean, thankfully, you know, because it worked out to be a better thing. But it was another lesson for me, just like the solo thing with, uh, you know, having to start over with input. Right. That was kind of in a different, it's actually funny. I hadn't really thought about it this way until now you asking me, but it kind of was the same sort of thing. You know, like everyone has a different way of working. Like every musician has a different way of working. Sure. And I think I had been a little um, in the dark about that to some extent. Like I just worked with people that all kind of worked the same way, more or less. And I think the way that both Jim... And what work is not only different from each other, but it's also different from some of the things that I was used to. So it's not as easy as like you pull out a chart and you hand it out and you go, all right, let's go. You know, it's, and, and I'm thankful for that because the reason I wanted to make, try to make music with them was because of the way that they impart their personalities, the way they do their thing that nobody else does, you know? Yeah. And you can't, get that from someone if you're forcing them to do something in a way that isn't conducive to that, you know? Right. Like to say it now, it's like, yeah, of course, no, duh. You know, like it's so <laughs> obvious, but you, I don't know. Maybe I'm a slow learner or it just, it just takes certain things to really make it clear when it's an abstract thing like art or music or whatever. But, um, yeah. 
so you know i had this stack of music i'm like all right we got like 18 tunes or whatever or whatever you know <laughs> and uh we tried we started to do the first one which was hospital song and um i realized like okay uh so i i have to maybe talk about the song a little bit in a different way than i'm used to to just sort of get a get something going not because they didn't know what to do but just because i i was like unprepared to work with those guys okay know? and they were like super gracious about being patient with me and stuff and again, just I, I learned so much from them that day, not only about how to how to adapt quickly to get something, but how to trust the people you're working with, too. Um, I could imagine if I was a different type of person or a different type of musician, if I had brought in all these plans and for whatever reason realized it wasn't going to go my way, you know, I could have like thrown a fit and canceled the whole thing. And yeah split and like dogged everybody and you know yeah. that's a, a that's stupid right. um, but but b like you know you're sitting there with these people who you know are like incredible and you just have to figure out a way to kind of get into something so we did hospital song just rapping and getting to know each other and stuff. And then, uh, I think, um, I think I, I was talking to Chris. I was like, you know, maybe is it cool if we just try to like improvise together and just maybe we should try that. You know, I mean, he's the one putting out the record. So I wanted to kind of ask him about it too. And I think he was like, yeah, yeah, that's cool. So I asked uh, Jim and Mike, if they want to do that, and they were like, yeah, sure. We're down for it. And so, um, we just went and we like, we improvised for like three hours. Wow. You know, maybe two and a half hours or something. So I, and, and it was like amazing, really fun. And I, in those moments, I'm always, my internal dialogue is like, stop playing, stop playing so much. <laughs> stop playing so much. You're ruining it. You know, yeah. uh, I know what be you mean. More thoughtful, be better. <laughs> <laughs> but so, yeah. So we got into all kinds of different grooves and, you know, Watt would set up some thing and Jim would set up something. And I think I set up a couple of things. And so I was like, wow, that was really fun. And then I think we did one more of the songs that I brought, Wall of Flowers. <laughs> Uh, oh, and we also did Blue Velvet. That's awesome. In a couple of different ways. That, that was just a duo with Jim on that one. And yeah, and at the end of the day, I, it was like really, you know, I was like, I was so fun. It was so fun. And those guys were so cool and so generous and so like uh, just musically heavy and personally like very comfortable and and just very positive and encouraging, you know, which again, like I don't, you know, they had no reason to be. I'm like this weird dude with like a bunch of music and then we just improvised for three hours so they were, they were really 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 gracious and uh so, but i remember at the end thinking like man i don't know if we have a record we have like two songs and like a bunch of improv you know yeah. <laughs> and so i i got home and uh i took the the improvised sections and i started listening to them a lot and chopping them up into things that i thought could be songs or these things that were like maybe the listener wouldn't know if they were songs or if they were improvisations. Uh, and another kind of little trick that was put in my ear from David Torn is like, if you have an improvised piece, you can go back and edit it. You know, you can go back and add to it. So I would find these 
little spots, these like little five, six, seven, ten minute spots that had a little compositional arc somehow. And the things that I thought spoke to me in that, like a composition, I would transcribe them. Oh, wow. And then I'd maybe write out harmonies and then I'd overdub guitar parts that kind of brought those things out. Because oh, wow. I like that idea of like a listener, you don't know what's happening. Like, is this improvised? Well, then how is this happening? Yeah, exactly. And it can't be composed because they're doing all this. So what is it? I like that, you know? Yeah, and that comes through in both of the albums. It's amazing. Oh, good. Cool. Which actually brings me to a question that I, I had for both of these albums with this trio. When you're improvising... Are you not just improvising with the song structure, but are you also kind of improvising with guitar tones and sounds and and bass and drum tones and sounds? Because you get some really different sounds on there. Like, yank it out. Oh, yeah. Well, that's that's Watts tune. Mike Watt wrote that one. You've got this nasty, gnarly guitar tone on that. Was that something that you came in saying, yeah, I want to play around with this? Or are you messing around with stuff while you're improvising? Um, You know, like that very particular instance, like I think the spot you're talking about is probably mostly the solos, guitar solos section, you can call it or whatever, like Watts playing the ostinato thing. Yeah, I think I just had a fuzz pedal on and I just put, you know, went to 10 on it. Okay. Uh, (laughs) But I think that's kind of just in the moment sort of things i have like uh, you know like i have little devices that i use like just talking about like actual like effects you know i have like a few go-to things that i always use and so i know i th- feel like i know them pretty well like i i try to think about if i'm going to use effects with electric guitar as most electric guitarists do yeah. maybe um i don't like the idea of just kind of throwing it on and you still do whatever you do but i do like the idea of trying to interact with what it does you know, yeah. so if I'm going to use a certain thing, I'm going to feel like I should practice that thing. Right. You know, because they respond differently. It makes you play different. Um, or I think ideally it should make you play different. Otherwise, why are you doing it? You know, why are you using it? It's <laughs> a good point. Um, yeah. Well, because I've heard a lot of guitarists that they play and they sound like themselves and they put a different sound on and they still sound like themselves. But but now it's like chorus, <laughs> you know, or. <laughs> Or whatever, which is totally great. But just for me, I want to have a more interactive relationship with the stuff, you know? Yeah. But so I can be in a moment, like in a song like that in a part and say like, oh, it needs a little zhuzh or whatever. And I can do it with this because I've practiced it that way. So, I mean, that in particular instance is just the fuzz pedal, like kind of raging, but, but also the way it feeds back with the guitar and the way it kind of sustains notes a little differently, maybe makes you make different choices Um, you know, and I use the whammy bar on the guitar a lot for different, like inflective kind of sounds. And so that definitely is a huge thing I've, I've had to practice a lot. And then you kind of combine those things so you can deal with the sustain from the, from the fuzz pedal and then how you're articulating with the whammy bar inflections and stuff. So the instrument grows like exponentially. You're not just, you know, plunking out 
the scale or, you know, right. whatever, you know, you're really like, you're, it, it becomes a vocal thing. I think, you know, yeah, well, we like, know how to use our voices. So it's kind of like that. Yeah. Well, like you said, you know, the, it becomes a, an instrument in and of itself. You're not just, you know, playing an overdriven guitar, the overdrive or the, the distortion is actually doing something besides just making the guitar sound fuzzy. Yeah, it's going to influence the choices you make. Yeah, yeah exactly. It becomes like this other, like, uh, imaginary member of the band. In yeah. A way, you know? Between Wallflowers and Everywhere You Go, which is an interesting title. Sounds very David Torn-influenced. Well, I wonder, I'm excited to see how many places just, like, don't do the spell check and it yeah. gets listed <laughs> as Everywhere right. We Go. I know what's going to happen. I don't know why I do this to myself. But, oh, yeah. Um, no, Everywhere We Go. Well, it's funny you say that because I actually got the idea from a, a, another guitarist named Henry Kaiser. Oh, okay. uh, he was, um, I don't think he was talking to me. I read it or it was so something, but he was talking about the idea of, of every when, like, you know, the word everywhere, it's like all, all places being considered at once. Right. But the, the concept of every when of all times being considered at once is kind of interesting. And I, I like to think, um, well, a high aspiration, I don't actually think this, but a high aspiration, I think for really good music would is that it's a timeless thing. You know, it's not locked into a, a zone of, of, um, you know, it's not, it's not, um, jailed in sort of like a time, uh, an era, I guess is what I'm right, saying. Right. Right. And I think like being lucky enough to work with these two guys and, and have them be like so generous with the music, you know, my hope is that it kind of, uh, reaches past boundaries, uh, musical boundaries at least. So I thought it was a fitting title. Well, before we get too deep into that, I wanted to ask you about main steam stop valve. Oh yeah. Was that created to play this, the music of wildflowers or is that, was it its own thing? Cause it's got Watt in it too, but Keltner's not part of that. No, no. Yeah. That's uh, that's me. Uh, it's my band, Mike Watt plays bass and uh steven hodges the great steven hodges yeah. is uh, our drummer in that band so that is a, a very different band that plays very different music but it did form because uh, i wanted to do a tour when wall of flowers came out okay. in uh, 2019 you know I, I like doing shows and stuff that's kind of my my uh wheelhouse you know yeah. like i've been playing live for a long time and so I figured like, okay, well, this is a cool record. So let's try to do some shows. And, uh, you know, Jim doesn't really travel too much anymore unless it's a special thing. Yeah. I think he's played with Clapton in Japan or something like that. So, Man. Well, you know, <laughs> I, I can take it. Yeah. I mean, uh... <laughs> uh, I'd probably do that too. I, yeah. Um, if you want to come on the podcast, I'd do it. <laughs> actually, I, I probably wouldn't do that, but, but yeah. I, I, so anyways, um, so he didn't want to travel for this. And I said, that's cool. You don't have to worry about anything. Thank you so much for doing this. And uh, I was talking to Watt and he was still down to do some shows. So I was like, is it weird to just have a different drummer? It was on the record. Cause that's kind of, you know, I don't ever want to like front with my music. You know, right. if it feels weird, it's going to feel weird, you know? And, and I don't want it to be on somebody else. Like, Oh, I'm filling in for so-and-so. Like I don't right. dig that thing either. So, uh, I was thinking about it for a while and I think I went back and forth with Watt about it for a little while. And he was like, well, why don't you just come up with some different music or we can come up with some different songs and then it'll be a different project or something. And I thought, okay, well, yeah, maybe that makes sense. And so I was thinking about who to ask kind of, cause I wanted to keep in this 
the spirit of this thing, like playing with people I hadn't, I didn't know. I thought that would be another good connection, just like uh, metaphysically. And so uh, I thought, well, one record that was like a huge blowout for me and like my concept of music was Watts' uh, album Contemplating the Engine Room. And that's, uh, I think that came out in 99 or something. I was in college, I remember. And that's Watts' music with uh, Hodge, Stephen Hodges on drums. Yeah. And uh, our friend Nels Klein plays guitar. And I remember when I had that record, somebody, I didn't buy the record, you know, but somebody taped it, I think, and gave it to me. <laughs> you know, I remember those cool. days. Yeah, poor college kids. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember like uh, at this time already I'd been thinking about this idea like we talked about earlier, you know, like I you know, I love jazz, I love rock, I love classical music, I love folk music. But how do I make it just my music, just one thing? Yeah. Where people ask me, "What kind of music do you play?" Like I'm tired of answering that because right. it doesn't make any sense. So, how, but how do I make my music reflect that? You know, how can I do that without feeling like, okay, here's the country track, here's the rock track, here's the jazz track, here's the classical track on the same record? It doesn't make any sense, you know? Right. How do you put it together and still have a cohesive, singular identity? It was like driving me nuts, you know, because it didn't seem like it shouldn't be impossible. And when I heard that record, Watts contemplating the engine room record, I remember listening to the whole thing nonstop in awe. And at the end, just going like, well, God damn it. Somebody did it. <laughs> <laughs> they did it. They did it. You know, and it made me feel like, okay, so I'm on the right track because I had this idea. Right. And now okay. I've witnessed an example, like a very high level example of this in action. Right. You know, they like they, the things they do on that record, they draw from all kinds of music, yeah. but it never sounds like a different band from track to track. It sounds like the same band with the same identity from front to back, incorporating all these elements in like the most natural way. And in a way where like the songs are like so emotionally like outpouring, you know, like the whole like just content of the words from Watt in that record is so like heartfelt and heart on your sleeves kind of thing. It was just like this perfect mix of stuff for me in that moment. And it just like blew me away. Like, okay. And then I felt like it was, you know, uh, I don't run at all, but they say nobody could run a four minute mile until somebody ran a four minute mile. And right. then what happened? Everybody could do it. Right. Yeah. It's just this like collective consciousness thing got opened up. And so that's what I feel like that record did for me. Oh, you know, wow. I've, I've told, I've told both those, I've told all three of those guys that a number of times, you know, because wow. it's so important to me. So in my mind, I was like, well, Maybe I'll ask Hodges. <laughs> That's uh, awesome. Why stop now? You know, so I, I uh, <laughs> walk in his number and I, I called him up and he was open to the idea. And I was living, uh, my wife and I were living in Knoxville, Tennessee at the time. And Hodges was still in Mavis Staples band and they were playing a festival in Chattanooga, about 90 minutes away from Knoxville. Oh, in a, cool. in a, a few weeks after I'd called him. So he was like, well, why don't you come down? You know, I think he just wanted to, hang out and make sure I wasn't like an ax murder or something, right. you know? <laughs> so I went down there and I, I picked him up at the hotel. We went to get some coffee. I remember we like, a, I think we got like coffee and bagels or something, but it was like raining. So we were getting poured on and stuff, but we, but we had a good time hanging out and getting to know each other. So, uh, but anyway, so he was down to do, he, he was like, yeah, I'll do, I'll try doing a tour. It'll be fun to reconnect with Watt and, and, uh, we seem to get along. So I was like, all right, great. Awesome. So I booked a 10 day tour, uh, coast to coast, U.S. tour for um, Wildflowers, and uh, it was great. It was a blast. It was so fun. 
those guys just killed it. And we did, we did a lot of the music from wall of flowers. And then we did a number of other things, um, that you can find on a, a CD from striped light records, which is called live flowers right? by MSSV. That, that is mostly, uh, that's mostly the Philadelphia show. track we did a studio tune for the encore every night and the encore is on the record is the one from uh, northampton mass with um jay mascus sitting in and joining us so that was really fun oh awesome yeah that was that was a real that was another like uh brain melter moment for no me. kidding man yeah so that's all on the live flowers cd but so you can you know what's, what's interesting if somebody wanted to be interested in this you know you could go get the wall of flowers record and listen to that and then you could listen to the live flowers CD and listen to that. And I think you hear like a really stark difference in the bands. The only difference is one person though. Yeah, it's true. And so it just shows to go you the difference that every personality in the band can have over the collective outcome of the music, you know, like you could change one person and you've got a completely different vibe. If the people in the band are listening to each other and reacting and playing in different ways, you know, if you just go on autopilot, no matter who's in the band, yeah, but I think it's going to feel flat yeah. anyways. The matter is in the band. But if you get people that are listening and reacting and communicating with music, it can have that effect. And it's a really interesting difference to me. So so halfway through that tour, I think we were driving somewhere. And I think Watt was like, so what are we going to call the band? <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah, okay, we're a band now. Cool, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. So he, he uh, one of his uh, donations to the band name uh, fund was Main Steam Stop Valve which has a, which is actually funny. I, I don't mean to get too long winded about it, but it has a connection again to the contemplating the engine room record. Cause there's a book called the sand pebbles by Richard McKenna. Yeah. And there's a movie. Yep. I remember the with, movie with Steve McQueen. Yeah. And, uh, one of the characters in there talks about the main steam stop valve is basically the crux of the engine that runs this ship that they're on. And that story had a lot to do with the contemplating the engine room record. And that record had a lot to do with me wanting to play with Hodge and Watt together. Wow. So you tie it up with a little bow there. <laughs> well, I think you mentioned something that's really important and it's, I've done some improvisational comedy and I think, oh, the, cool. I think the concept that you learn in that works for that as well as music. And it's, it's, the concept of yes and so if in improvisational comedy you you don't deny your comedic partners whoever's in in on stage with you whatever they say you agree to it and you expand on it ah okay and so if you, if you deny them then everything just stops you're butting heads and, and it doesn't flow nothing happens it just falls and i think that works with improvisational music as well because like you said, the one person is making a difference in that band. This is some of the same songs, but the sound is completely different because you're taking what that person is putting into it and expanding upon that. 
And I think, yeah, it, that makes a lot of sense to me. Yep. I think it works well in, in both senses of improvisation. And that, that's just fascinating to me. I just, I, I love improvisational anything really. Well, that's interesting for me to hear too, because, you know, uh, like, I think it does make a lot of sense what you're saying. And, uh, as someone that's like kind of riddled with like, you know, neuroses in the moment of, in the actual act of, <laughs> not to plug the name of the show, but in the actual act of performance, you know, right. having like performance anxiety, <laughs> no, but just kind of that feeling, uh, you know, there's always, and I, I think this is true with a lot of people to some extent and people get over it at different points in their life. But like if you're playing or you're improvising, whatever, I think it's a pretty honest thing to be sitting there going, is this working? Or is this total trash? Yep. <laughs> you know, and I think you can make a choice at that point. You can dig in and double down and push the confidence through. So it will work, you know, or it is already obviously working. But if you're playing with people and you don't allow the, the and like you're talking about, then it can also kick into this other thing where you're like, the other person can sense like, oh yeah, they're not into this. So I'm right. gonna, so I'm gonna back off, and then everything gets timid and like you and know, tight. Yeah, I, nothing good's gonna come out of that. Right? Yeah, it, it, everything. Everybody starts to tighten up, and yep. in in comedy, if you're not relaxed and and loose, maybe you're not. You, your mind isn't working as freely to expand the scene you're in and in music if you're tightened up you know you it the music is going to sound tight and not improvisational you're just going to go back yeah. to your fallback whatever your fallback happens to be 100 percent. yep yep and it ties into that thing again just trusting the people you're working with like yeah. if you, you know you wanted to work with these people for a reason so why not trust them 110 percent? exactly you know exactly. if you're insecure just turn turn to them and figure it out with working together and trusting that something good is going to come out of it because you're there together, you know? Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, what, you know, we're talking about every good relationship. Regardless yeah. Of yeah, exactly. It doesn't have to be music or comedy. Mm -hmm. So the new album, every when you go is back to Watt and Keltner. So was it difficult to get them in the same place again? I mean, is, imagine you, the three of you guys, your schedules have to be crazy. Well, yeah, coming out of the MSSV talk, it's also really important for me to note that this is, you know, like we said, MSSV is like its own band. We yeah. have our, our own records. We do our own tours. What happened on that first tour, I felt really bad about because there was a lot of people kind of, I think, asking Hodges what it was like to sub for Keltner. Mm. And I think at a certain point, I just felt like, all right, I got to step up. And I just like started correcting people. Like he's not subbing for anybody. You're talking to goddamn Stephen Hodges. He's not going to, he doesn't have yeah. to sub for anybody. You know, exactly. he's, <laughs> he's equally legendary. Yeah. So it's a really important distinction, you know? So this is not like, oh yeah, now we're back to this. No. MSSV still has a bunch of stuff going on and new records coming out and all that. Oh, awesome. but so what, the reason this happened, everyone we go, the reason this happened was because I had all that improvised material from the first session, from the wall of flowers session. And I think just the first two chunks are what I took for, um, I am not a data point and uh, dirty smell of dying. And then there's like another, like two hours of improv. Wow. You know, I didn't, I didn't have to like fish that far. Like those two snippets were like, Oh, these are great. I can work with this. I can work with that. Great. Okay. And then I had enough for the record after for, you know, time wise to make a record. And then I had all this stuff left. So in my mind I was like, okay, well this idea of like chopping up the improv and recomposing, this is working. This is great. And I've definitely got enough that we could do another record from it. So I spent a bunch of time kind of chopping it up and 
you know, transcribing things and recomposing and or overdubbing and re-recording. And there's a whole record of that stuff. And, uh, and so again, something really interesting happened. I think Chris, uh, sent it to, uh, to Jim just to kind of get approval from everybody and, um, keep, keep in mind it's mixed and mastered and everything. Okay. And, you know, I think Jim had a really brilliant idea. He, he wrote back and he was like, well, this is, I'm getting this secondhand. I don't actually know exactly what he said, but, uh, verbatim, but to paraphrase, it was something like, you know, this is really interesting and it sounds great, but you know, this is from like, at this point, this is from two or three years ago. Yeah. And so maybe we should just, you know, if you really want to do this, maybe we should just do another day. That's you know, awesome. and it was like a pretty, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just sort of an innocent, obvious, maybe like a helpful kind of thing to say, but I was like, oh, yeah, okay, maybe we could, I didn't even cross my mind, you know, I was like, well, yeah. I've already got this stuff, so I don't, <laughs> I don't need to bug those guys, I yeah. can just compose around this, you know, <laughs> but it was really encouraging, I think, to, to hear that he was down to just try some more, I think it maybe just because he could see I was into it and working on it or something, so. Well, it sounds like he so, was into but, it too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, really, really, again, dude's so generous, you know? Yeah. Uh, really a sweet, sweet guy. And, um, so I said, well, okay, let's figure it out. So this is, uh, kind of like during COVID at this point, which I mean, like forever now is during COVID. Right? Yeah. <laughs> BC is now before COVID. Right. <laughs> anyway, we have AC. So this is like mid AC. COVID is now every when. (laughs) Yeah. So it's like, I think summer 2021, it's like in that zone where it's starting to chill out. And I think like maybe everybody got their first shots. And so everybody was like, all right, it's ending. (laughs) So so we scheduled something like pre Thanksgiving. So I I was going to go back out to LA for some other stuff. I had some other gigs and then we found a date where we could all meet up in Long Beach again at, at Big Ego. And uh, it was cool. It was the same same kind of vibe. We were hanging out. We had a good time. I think the advantage is I could write knowing a little bit better about maybe how these guys like to work, maybe. Yeah. So I kind of brought a couple of things that I thought would be really fun to do and uh, that would just kind of allow them to just d- dive right in and make the magic happen. And then we did, we did improvise some more, and I did go back and chop some of those up. And then Watt wrote a piece of his own for this time, which is different than Wall of Flowers. He wrote the song Yank It Out. That's Watt's composition, like, completely. And I think he, uh, again, I don't remember verbatim, but I think he was telling me, I know he was listening to that brand-new live Love Supreme John Coltrane quartet that had just come out. I think it was live in Seattle or something. Okay, yeah. I know he was listening to that, like, a ton, like, hundreds of times. So I I think uh, he was saying that this that piece is yank it out is maybe kind of like his take on some of the stuff he was getting from that record. Oh, wow. That's awesome. That solo part we were talking about before. I think that's a real like Elvin Jones Coltrane moment in the song between me and Jim. And that that's one of my favorite tracks from the, I I also, cool. I love fake break. Oh, great. Wow. Cool. That to me, that's got this George Harrison vibe to it. The the slide on it. That's got his sound a little bit on it. And it's just reminiscent of that. And it's just, it's something something almost familiar to it, you know?
very, uh, thank you. That's very nice to hear because I don't really play a lot of slide. I'm not like a slide player. I have slides and I enjoy hearing it and I yeah. mess around with it and I do. Okay. I can watch that intonation, but, um, but you know, like I was going to put the slide on that track and I was like, yeah, I mean, to, to me, slide guitar is George Harrison. That's like the way he's so melodic with it, the, the yeah. sound. Yeah. Of course there's like tons of great other slide players and stuff. Um, throughout the history of the instrument. But for me, the way George Harrison plays slide is like, that's the top, you know, and always kind of in my ear when I'm thinking about it. And so I had been working on it and I didn't kind of want to put it on there for that part, but there was a little moment of like, like, what are you nuts? You're going to play slide with Jim Keltner. Who's on all these, who's on like all your favorite George Harrison, right? But uh, you can't think like that. You can't think about it that way. You just have to, it doesn't matter. He's, you know, he's done a lot of other stuff too we're all just people making music together. And so that's what it called for. So I did my best. And uh, yeah, I think it was, it was fun for me at least, you know, well, it was, it's great. Cause Harrison's slide guitar is, is so clean and precise. Yeah. It's not very, it's not, you hear some people and it's kind of sounds a little sloppy maybe. And I, I like, I, I'll be the first one. I love sloppy slide guitar. It sounds raw and, and, but well, that, you can get a lot of that from me. <laughs> I could be sloppy slide guitar all day long. <laughs> but it, it, it does. It, it, it that not on that track because that's that sounds nice and clean and, and very precise. And that, that's one of the oh, thank you, Mark. That's one of the things that made me think of George Harrison and, and the style. But I also love this is not a euphemism. It's it sounds it's got the like the angularness of jazz, but it's soft. It sounds like maybe it's like softened up a little. It's, I don't exactly know how to describe what I'm hearing because I'm not a jazz expert. But you don't have to be. That's like one thing I always say. Like people say that stuff, and it, that is like should be the furthest thing from your mind. You're a, a human that loves listening to music. So I, whatever you say is as valid as anything else. Well, I love it. And, well, this may sound a little weird because sometimes some, some of the angular stuff from some other players I've heard sounds like somebody, like the guitar fell down the stairs, but not this. It, it's, it's very, you get the jazz sound. I don't know. It's, it's I can't even really describe it. Just the way a, a jazz solo is different from a rock solo. You know, it's not, but it's not as angular and sharp and, and, not abrasive, but it's, it's, I guess angular is the only way to describe it. You kind of softened it up a bit and made it a lot nicer to my ears. Well, thank you. Yeah. You know, something I try to do, uh, and this actually is kind of a conscious decision that I think people pick up on a little bit in my playing is, um, that it sounds like it's about to completely fall apart. I know what you're saying. <laughs> Stay with me. <laughs> but you know, because you get the excitement and sort of the anxiety of like, what is about to, Oh, here it comes back. You know, like it's, he saved it or something. I like that idea that sort of like playing in that kind of like, you know, pan rhythmic non denominational (laughs) kind of way. Like, you know, there's time, there's always time, but I don't want to have to adhere strictly to the time. If I want to 
if I want it to sound like it's falling down the stairs, cool. But the cat lands on its feet at the bottom. True. So that's kind of my, my ethos, you know. I've enjoyed that with you because it does, it's at times it's you like, how is he going to pull this out? It's on a record, so he's going to pull it out. You're not going to let it completely fall <laughs> well, apart and then record it and release it. <laughs> so See, but maybe next time I will. That's ah, what keeps people on their toes. There you go. <laughs> Man. Next record is going to be just the worst. It's going to be. <laughs> everywhere. It's going to be Mike Baguetta. Balloon music falls apart. <laughs> so I love this album. I, I think it's it's not. Uh, I don't want to say it's, it's not a typical jazz album. And, it's, and I guess maybe the uh, the effects that you're using or something. I don't know. There's there's definitely a little rock edge to it, and which is what draws me into it. And the amazing players on it just keeps me in it. It's a jazz bass album that I'm going to listen to over and over again. Well, so. thank you. I, I have a term I like to use called post-genre. Oh, where like we're in uh, we're in 2022, going into 2023, and as I've been saying all along, what kind of music do you play? Doesn't matter to me. I don't even want to think about it. You know, like there's all sorts of other baggage that goes along with genre definitions. Mm-hmm. You have the weight of history of like sociological everything. Yeah, you know. You say a genre and a person gets a picture in their mind. It's like insane, you know? So because I'm trying to think about how to have jazz, rock, classical, punk, whatever, like all these things filtered through my lens, you know, of Mm -hmm. of what it is that speaks to me from those things and put it together. You don't hear a lot of like swing time on the record, you know? So some people, they think jazz, they're going to think ding, 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 ding. There really isn't too much of that. Right. Um, There are straight beats. There is kind of this like noir Spanish kind of thing a little bit here and there. There's some acoustic music, there's electronic effects, there's loops and samples. And so, so it's a funny thing, you know, because I think some people that are like real sort of like hardcore capital J jazz fans, they would, they would like chastise us for thinking about it with that word, you know, but then you have guys who only listen to like hardcore and they wouldn't consider this rock at all. And stuff. Right. So it's, it's a funny thing, man. It's a really interesting kind of like little social experiment. I run with the records, you know, to, <laughs> to see like what people think and what they don't think. And it's this, and it's not that and it's this and that. And I just don't worry about any of it. I think you stumbled across a, a great formula for an album. Just take whatever, maybe the entire goal is just to alienate the hardcore of every genre. Well, that's an interesting idea. But then what do you, if you get rid of the hardcore people, what are you left with? I think, think everybody else, just <laughs> normal people, people who like a wide, a wide variety no, of stuff. No conviction. Yeah. <laughs> I forget. Um, I think it's a real quote and I forget who it's about and I forget who said it. <laughs> This is good. <laughs> but I think the quote is something like, if you're not upsetting half your audience, then you're not doing your job right. Interesting. I think I read that somewhere about Godard who passed away yesterday. I should I should try to piss off more people on this podcast then. Yeah, well, half of them. Yeah. I, should, I, gotta, figure, I gotta figure out how to do that. No more than half. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well... Before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you about this other project that you're doing that I saw on your website, the uh, limited direct-to-vinyl improv singles with Ava Mendoza. Oh, yeah. That sounds amazing. 
is that still in the works? You still doing that? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's uh, well, yeah. So uh, I guess maybe it'll have been made already when this airs, but um, we're recording them on October 10th. Uh, Ava is, um, she's definitely one of my favorite musicians. I mean, not just a guitarist, but just like a conceptualist. I think what she does is, is awesome. Um, and I've been aware of her for a while. I don't think we, we were in New York together for a long period of the same amount of time, but I don't think we really met until, uh, until the last show of the wall of flowers tour. We played in Manhattan at, um, the club, the club that used to be, uh, brownies, but oh. it, had cha- it had changed names and it was, it was called, uh, it was called Coney Island baby when we played there. Oh, wow. but now it's, now it's like a different, somebody else owns it and it's a different name, but it was always brownies. Man, I used to go to brownies a bunch. <laughs> yeah. East village. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so the people who put that on, who put that show on was uh, Le Poisson Rouge, this uh, music venue production company, sort of great sort of taste, taste makers, estheticians, and they have a great performance space. They're really, really cool guys. But uh, so they put the show on and uh, they asked who uh, I wanted as the opener. And I think Ava reached out to me or because I book all this stuff myself. So I think Ava reached out to me or, or what mentioned her as something i forget exactly but i was like oh yeah what a great idea so she did a solo set she opened for us and then she joined us on the encore oh, cool. uh just like jay jay Massey's did in northampton she joined us in new york so we'd have guests on the encore and stuff and uh it was really fun playing with her i think there's a youtube video up of that of me and her playing together on the encore of that last mssv show you oh, can find cool. it like raging guitar like noise shred like and it, I, I remember like at one point we looked at each other like smiling like this is great <laughs> see you and just then, won me over with that it was really fun yeah it was really fun and, and we got along good and then um over uh pandemic over lockdown you know we were doing different you know mssv did some seven inch vinyl projects and yeah, distance yeah. tracking and stuff uh and I think at one point Ava reached out and was like, do you want to do a split seven? Like one of her bands on one side and MSSV on the other side. And I think, I think what happened was I was in the middle of like these two, these last two seven inches we were doing. And I, I kind of like didn't have the bandwidth and, and I was like, can I get back to you? And then I think maybe I just spaced and didn't write back to her uh, or, or something, or maybe I did. And I, I, I don't remember, but it didn't end up happening is the point. And so, uh, then when MSSV did the big, um, our Haru tour, the spring us tour this past, uh, spring, March and April of 22, we did, um, 48 shows from uh, coast to coast around the U S 48 shows in 48 days. That's amazing. Um, God, it was really fun. At one point there was this, uh, sort of little boutique record label called least of all that asked if we wanted to do a session for them while we were in New York. And I was like, well, we don't have any time, unfortunately, cause you know, we got to go to the next gig. Yeah. But I filed that away. It sounded like what they do is an interesting thing, but although what they, it sounds like what they usually do is, uh, you get an artist to go in and they do a song 
but let's say 10 people buy the record that they're going to record like the live version or whatever, mm -hmm. they've got to do that same song 10 different times for each of the people. Wow. So in my mind, I was like, you got to do the same song 10 times. And they, and they like lathe cut a little seven inch in the mall. You know, it's like That's super amazing. It's kind of a cool thing, but it seems like a little, like, it seems like you could do a little more with this. So in my mind, I was like, well, what if you just did a different improvisation every time? That would be more fun, you know? Yeah. And so I was like, oh, I should ask Ava because I spaced on that other thing. This would be a perfect opportunity. She lives in New York. They're in New York. I've got some other shows in New York. So, so uh, she was into it and, uh, which is cool. So I, uh, we booked ourselves a couple little live shows beforehand. We're doing a, we will have done a masterclass together. Oh, awesome. and I think we've sold uh, 30 of these Wow! because you got to, you can't sell more than you can do in a, in a day at this session. So you can't do like a hundred cause you got to do it a hundred times. Right. So I convinced the little label to say like, well, you know what we're going to do instead of doing one song 30 times, let's do 30 different improvisations. So everybody who wants to buy one, they buy one. Somebody buys improvisation number one, they get that one. They're the only one who gets it. That's amazing. Improvisation number two, they buy that. It's different. They're the only one who gets it. So we're going to do 30 improvisations that are cut onto these 30 individual discs. Ah. And they're, they sold out in like a day. So it went real quick. I'm so angry. Um, I just found out about this. Well, you know, hopefully it'll, it'll serve as a, a launch pad to to something further from us. So yeah, it'll be really fun. I'm, I'm excited though. I think we're looking forward to it. That's amazing. I mean, having an in, a, a unique single, the one of one, it's just, that's, yeah. Incredible. I mean, it's, there's a little kitsch thing, but I, I like that stuff. You I do know, too. Like, like super ultra limited edition. No one else has this. I, you know, exactly. I'm, I'm into that. So it's all right. I love that. <laughs> I love that kind of stuff. So <laughs> where can uh, everybody find the album when it comes out? How can they follow you and, and get more information on uh, other limited edition things you're doing and maybe some <laughs> not so limited edition things? Yeah. You know, uh, if you just, uh, go to you look for Mike Baguetta on uh, Instagram. That's kind of where I do most of my stuff. I have a Facebook page, um, but most importantly, I have a website, mikebaguetta.com. Watch the spelling. It's two G's and two T. <laughs> um, there's an email list. I don't really send out a lot of emails, maybe a couple times a year, like in where the something approaching is approaching. I'll send out an email and then the onus is on you to mark your calendar down. Yeah. And then, uh, so you can find all that stuff. And then, uh, for the record, you know, you can find links through the website, but the everyone we go record on big ego records, you can find that mainly through our Bandcamp sites, mikebaguetta.bandcamp.com or, um, big ego records also has a Bandcamp site. Big ego records also has a website, which I should know the name of, but it's probably something like bigegorecords.com. That makes sense. Uh, you know, do a little Google, <laughs> you can figure it out. But they, uh, you can, you'll be able to purchase it through there. But they also do a record club where you can subscribe for a year and you get all the records that they that they put out for the year. Oh, so this awesome. year is kind of ending, but um, you'll still get all the ones that came out this year. And I think there's uh, everyone we go is the last one. There's two Psychic Temple reissues also in that. I, I always thought that was cool to just sign up for a subscription from a label and just see what you get, you know, so oh, you can do that. Yeah, I love that kind of stuff. Yeah, it, yeah, way into it. Oh, it's awesome. Well, That's a good word. I want to thank you for, for spending so much time with me. I've, I mean, I've kept you for quite a while tonight. It's, it's been a oh, blast. Time flies, man. It was a blast. It was real fun.